0: Hello and welcome to another Bioprocess Insider Expression Platform podcast. The first of the new year, 2023. Coming up later in the year, I am excited to announce we will be focusing on women in biotech with a series of podcasts interviewing some of the leading women in the space. But for this episode, we are returning to the hardy perennial that is cell and gene therapy production. 2022 was a year of transition for Ori Biotech, with the closing of a Series B financing, allowing the company to rapidly advance the development of its automated and closed manufacturing platform. And looking at 2023 and beyond, CEO Jason Foster tells Bioprocess Insider reporter Millie Nelson, the company's ambition is to harness data and experience with its external partners to see the tech platform used in clinical manufacturing and eventually commercial production, helping to cut the costs of cell and gene therapies. This conversation covers a number of key issues within the advanced therapy space, from the fragile supply chains to the issues of accessibility and pricing. Foster also speaks frankly about these therapies as second-line and even first-line treatments before discussing the hurdles fashioned by both the US and UK healthcare systems. But to start us off, he describes the latest developments of his firm's manufacturing tech and the benefits of the paperless platform. So sit back, relax and enjoy Jason Foster, CEO of Ori Biotech.
1: We are currently uh, finalizing the beta version of the mm-hmm. platform. Um, and as you'll recall, there's kind of three elements of the platform. There's the kind of novel bioreactor system. There's the automation uh, that automates things like fluid handling and reduces greatly the amount of manual intervention required. Mm-hmm. And then the data platform as kind of the third element. So this is the kind of three legs of the stool as it were. Uh, that beta platform will be available to our early access partners uh, mm-hmm. starting early next year. You know, in the first half of next year, uh, we announced—you probably saw—in uh, September uh, our partnership with the Cell Therapy Manufacturing Center, which is a yeah. JV between MD Anderson and National Resilience. Uh, so, and we have other partners as well that will be receiving the platform in that same mm-hmm. kind of t- same time frame, kind of middle of next year. So we're finalizing those elements to make sure that they can be put in the hands of our partners and tested. Um, currently in our lab today, we've got uh, instruments uh, doing biological runs, generating data in real time that's being uh, sent into the cloud, being monitored by our team uh, that are outside the lab. So we're starting to see uh, things like you know dissolved oxygen readings
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and temperature and CO2 and these kinds of things in the system in real time. So that's great kind of proof of concept that we know if something isn't working properly. Yeah. Um, I was in the lab uh, a couple of days ago and one of the machines is being sort of changed over and cleaned and the phone rang and they said, well, why isn't, you know, machine one, two, three working? It's don't <laughs> worry, We're just cleaning it. It's okay. No I mean, problems. that's great.
3: You know, they've got eyes
1: on it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I think, you know, in today's world, it's sort of, you get maybe an alarm or a notification and then you have to drive into the facility and gown in and try and get into the clean room and figure out what's happening. And you know, so the ability to actually remote in and look at what's happening, do remote setup. We don't have to send people all over the world to set instruments up. These kinds of things. So these are the benefits that this digital platform, this digital leg of the stool, as it were, give us. You know, the ability to digitize the information, to do remote monitoring, to do remote setup, to then take that data, to structure it, to aggregate it, uh, and then start to turn information, out, uh, turn it into information, so that our partners can actually learn better what's happening in their processes shortened development timelines, better characterization. That's the promise of the digital platform uh, is ultimately just being more efficient, uh, making these processes more effective more quickly so that we can get them to patients more quickly. And then ultimately the ability to get to scale because right now we know that a manual batch release process with a paper batch record um, Mm -hmm. with is, you know, picture 16, 20 binders of this thick, you know, three ring binders. And having a human being have to leaf through every page and say, yes, that's okay. That's not okay. That deviation, let me me look that up. Exactly. It's just, we're always going to be a bottleneck in that scenario. The the QP or the person doing the quality release is going to be a bottleneck at at any sort of scale. Uh, And so the ability to do continuous validation, as we were talking about, but also Mm -hmm. QA and QC by exception, opens up the kind of widespread access, which is really, as you know, kind of Ori's mission as a company.
3: Yeah. And um, just picking up on what you were saying there about, you know, the huge stacks of paper, the need to travel into a facility. We speak a lot nowadays about sustainability, Mm. I'm assuming having paperless systems, digitalization it's also going to contribute to the sustain, a sustain, sustainability plan and become more sustainable um, for the company and for, I guess, any partner who uses that, that technology.
1: I think it has to, you know, moving from digital paper-based or moving from paper-based processes to digital has to be helpful in that way. You know, I guess people make arguments about, you know, the carbon footprint of data centers, mm-hmm. you know, out there in the world and these kinds of things, but... Uh, it will certainly save lots of trees uh, and you know give us the ability to potentially save on in lots of other ways you know digital might enable things like a distributed manufacturing model where you have Mm -hmm. multiple sites in different places different countries different regions which would cut down on logistics costs and you know flying things from one place to another driving them and packaging associated with that and costs associated with that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that we're trying to optimize for Uh, you know i I dare say sustainability isn't necessarily the primary uh, thing we're optimizing for at the moment. We'll get there. Uh, it's yeah. probably ter- tertiary uh, at this point, but there's certainly obvious savings to be had uh, from this this approach.
3: Yeah, it's inside. And I think that's quite refreshing, actually, to say that it's not necessarily the primary thing, because I think sometimes, you know, so many companies and people they they greenwash and it's not always necessarily that it's that sustainable so it's nice to hear and it it makes sense that that's going to come a little bit later in the process backtracking a little bit to your discussion about the partners and currently testing out the platform and um i was going to ask you having that light speed program what advantages does that provide you with and um I guess what edge does that provide you with as a company to to have that knowledge from partners before it's necessarily available to everybody?
1: I mean, Lightspe- Lightspeed was sort of conceived for really two main reasons. One is to get feedback from the market on what we're developing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times these kinds of developments happen in a vacuum and then they get launched and there's significant limitations that either make them not acceptable to the market or certainly not uh, well liked or well adopted by the market and so you get these inflexible systems a lot of
2: mm-hmm.
1: as you know when you when you talk to stakeholders about manufacturing the word inflexibility comes up quite a lot <laughs> uh, because the platforms that they have to today just can't really adapt to the needs of their process
2: mm-hmm. so it really helps
1: us get that feedback and avoid those you know own goals as we would say uh and to use a football reference it's sort of you know <laughs> there are avoidable things we can do to make it better uh, for users we want to do that uh, the second key strategy is really to get kind of early adoption in the marketplace um, Mm -hmm. so that we can show that there is a need there um, and that you know the system has uh, benefits out there in the real world not just not just in our labs oftentimes these things work very well in the hands of the creators yeah but less well in the hands of you know the, the end users and so the ability to demonstrate that it actually does work it does what it says in the tin you know we have the ability to to impact positively some of the things that we're trying to do Um, those kinds of proof points are great for us as we go into commercialization you know it creates reference partners uh, for the people can go and talk to you know how you use the system what has it done for you is it good at this is it bad at that you know tell me the real scoop um and we're anxious to when you're trying to partner with pharmaceutical biotech Mm -hmm. industry who are by nature risk averse you know i think I've worked in this field for 25 years and I think for a lot of good reasons that the industry doesn't move too quickly because we're afraid, you know, people might get hurt if we make decisions too hastily. Yeah. Uh, so it's often good to have someone they can go talk to who has seen it firsthand, has done it, has adopted it, or is working with us. And they can say, you know, it's really good at this, maybe not quite as good as that, but, you know, sort of give them a, a third party independent view. There's a yeah. massive amount of validation there that's beneficial
3: definitely, but a bit of a, a sense of security, I guess, if, you, if you're if you going to like third parties and not solely relying on the company who, if you're a bit worried about risk, you might think that they're telling you all the good things and leaving out some of the different parts. Um, so
1: yeah, no, I like, think as as technology providers, we maybe haven't done ourselves a very good service in that vein. I think that, that has been the case historically sometimes. Where <laughs> we've over-promised and under-delivered and I uh, think always anxious not to do that.
3: Yeah, no, I, I think that To me, that's uh, interesting. Uh, I haven't personally come across um, a company who's launched technology or launching technology and said, you know, this is being trialled out by external people. Majority of the time it's we're trialling this out. It's great. We love it. It's going to be on the market this day and we'll Mm -hmm. launch it at a... Uh, event and <laughs> hopefully it will bring in some traction. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think, you know, development's hard and, and these things and I think people are afraid to pull back the curtain and show mm-hmm. the show everybody kind of warts and all. That, you know, when we, do, we do we do this well, we don't do as this as well as we'd like, but we're moving in this direction and this is what maybe the next iteration or the next iteration. I think, you know, transparency is certainly part of our culture. Um, we don't want to overpromise. We want to make sure our partners know exactly what they're getting into. And this is a great way to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak.
3: What are you predicting for the company in twenty twenty three? Is there anything particular on AIM that you can kind of pinpoint and speak about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think those partnerships certainly are uh, high up on our our wish list. Our radar is to make sure mm-hmm. that we can get the platform in the hands of some of those partners and start to get some external data. Uh, we've generated a lot of data internally. Uh, most often certainly with the alpha prototype that's been out kind of in the wild, if you will, Mm -hmm. for the last two years. We've seen very good validation of our internal data through our external partner work. Um, We hope to have the same thing happen now, Mm -hmm. the beta. And the beta really becomes that kind of works-like, looks-like version of what will eventually hit the market. So it's kind of the final validation points that it does what it says, you know, what we sought out to do. That seems to be acceptable to the marketplace. Um, We'll also want to put in by the end of the year, our master file with the FDA. So Mm -hmm. our partners can use that as part of their regulatory package. Uh, Yeah, And ideally we have a couple of partners who have open um, investigator-led trials most frequently that they want to start to think about clinical use, at least running it alongside their existing clinical program, which demonstrated they can get the right CQAs out the other side and the right Mm -hmm. kind of releasable product uh, and run there testing and, you know, the assays that are required for for released into the clinical trial so we can get, if not first dosing into patients, but certainly get as close as we would, can to that uh, in 23 would be great. You know, that kind of validation ultimately is the only validation that matter, matters, you know, does it create yeah. effective and safe therapeutics? Uh, and that's where we're headed, full steam ahead.
3: That sounds great. And um, the platform itself, is. are you hoping then that it's um fully
1: online for everyone so it will be commercially available in 24 uh, so 24. our early access part our early access partners will have access in
2: 23
1: yeah um and so that transition post the kind of leap validation yeah to commercial manufacturing and supply chain you know one of the things we've learned uh the hard way over the last couple of years is that supply chains are very fragile in our industry mm-hmm. and if you don't have robust supply chains and business continuity plans things, key ingredients, key raw materials, key consumables go out of stock. And yeah. You can't get some of them, you can't run your processes. And so we're very anxious to ensure that we've got a robust supply chain with enough uh, inventory and supply chain uh, mm-hmm. resilience that we can promise to our partners that we're not going to go out of stock. Uh, because ultimately, if they're, if they're counting on us to, to help them with their clinical trial or ultimately their commercial manufacturer, you know, patients' lives hang in the balance. And,
3: yeah.
2: you
1: know, I don't want, I don't want already to already be responsible for why those patients couldn't get treated.
3: No, of course. And I, I think I hate saying the word now because it feels like we've, we're moving on a little bit. But COVID really highlighted the importance of supply chain security. And I think a lot of businesses that I've spoken to, they've changed their strategy. Um, mm-hmm. They're like, you know, we look at multiple Um, people to work with in terms of who can supply this material so we're not just counting on one person we make sure we have xyz in so long before whereas maybe you would have left it a little bit and now it's like we can see what actually can happen if you do leave it you might not get that material for a very very long time or you're paying premium to get the same thing
1: yeah, no, absolutely. It's exposed the kind of weaknesses of the just-in-time mentality of mm-hmm. you know if you can put an order in and a week or two later it arrives from a factory in China or somewhere else uh, under normal circumstances that was okay that was great for working capital mm-hmm. and great for other things but it, it doesn't work when it breaks down fundamentally and that's yeah. you're right you're seeing multi-source people going back to multi-source supply mm-hmm. you know just holding more inventory you know versus like some players in our space used to hold less than 30 or 60 days. You know, they mm-hmm. want to keep turning that. They didn't want a lot of money, sitting cash sitting in inventory. And we've seen what, what that kind of strategy could result in if we don't uh, don't make it more robust. And actually, I mean, we, we joke about sort of COVID being in the rearview mirror. I think most of us think so. But I just read an article today about how there's a, the record number of COVID cases in China.
3: Sticking kind of with the theme um, 2023, Is there anything or a trend that you expect to see in the CGT space in 2023? Is there anything you can think that's going to be maybe more widely adopted or more sought after?
1: What I hope to see in 23 is more focus on ultimately accessibility and affordability uh, Mm -hmm. of these products, I think. And that has sort of a cascade of implications downstream to people like ourselves, but also developers and and investors who are investing in this space is kind of do we focus on and when do we focus on it. Uh, We used to be solely focused on approvability. Can we get good clinical data? Can we get a product that's clinically effective and safe? Uh, Everything else sort of will take care of itself if we can do that. That was the old thinking. The current or today's thinking and the shift that I see is we need to think about accessibility. uh, Having an approved product that patients can't get access to because it's too expensive or we can't make Mm -hmm. it that's a disaster. We've already spent the money, the billion or two billion or whatever the number is to develop the product. And now it's sitting here and we can't make it and we can't get it to patients. We need to make sure that we front run that issue. And I think, you know, this shift and I'm seeing more and more in the investment community, investors asking therapy developers earlier and earlier, you know, how are you going to manufacture it? What's your strategy around manufacturing? Uh, And in the current tight uh, funding environment, you know, people need to have a good answer for that. And they need to understand that, you know, they're very focused on the accessibility of the product once it hits the market not just its approvability yeah so that's uh that's one of the trends i hope we see more of um and things like digital like we talked about yeah you know, help with that things like automation we talked about will help with that uh, and also i think there's there's quite a lot of um darwinian sort of things happening in the industry i mean there's something like 2700 clinical trials happening you know, I was at a, an event a couple weeks ago, and so do we need another c d nineteen car to treat a l l like yeah. you know, is that is that necessary to be start stud- being studied? There's something like twelve of them in the clinical trial database. It's sort of mm-hmm. you know you'll start to see where the money gets tighter. you know there's more focus on ideas that are novel, that are yeah. reimbursable, that are more likely to succeed. A lot of this kind of me too activity mm-hmm. may result may cease to happen or certainly be. Uh, less, uh, less frequent. So hopefully we'll get more higher quality programs that are targeted yeah. at some of those you know major unmet need areas uh, that are able to make it to patients. I think that would be a great result if we kind of shift focus in that direction in
3: 2023. Definitely, an interesting point that you brought up. You know, it's great if it works, but if no one can afford it and have access to it, it's almost I assume that would be more frustrating because it's sat there and you're like, this works, this could cure, let's say, cancer or, you know, improve some people's lives. But nobody has that money or healthcare systems don't necessarily have that money to make it accessible for all. So it becomes kind of an exclusive um, piece of technology rather than an inclusive piece of technology, which Ori is. An inclusive piece of technology if it's lowering the costs for general access, which is uh, clearly in the the aim of the company, which exactly. makes complete sense.
1: Well, I mean, it's the worst case scenario for everyone, right? So, the therapy developer has spent all of the time and effort yeah. to develop a product. They've launched it, which is no small feat. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've applied for market access, applied for reimbursement. Um, they've already proven it to be clinically effective. Patients want it, patient advocates, advocacy groups are lobbying for it. But that it just can't be afforded. I mean, this is what happened with Integlo in Europe. you know you yeah. have this incredibly efficacious therapy that's been developed over many years um it was deemed to be too expensive by mm-hmm. European you know uh, reimbursement authorities so therefore patients in Europe can't get access to the product. you know the therapy developer doesn't get the ability to earn back some of those r and d dollars that they spent. Uh, it's just kind of the worst worst for everyone uh, so we yeah. need to make sure that we front run that issue and Exactly. To your point, I say, you know, what's the point of having cures for cancer if patients can't get access to them?
3: Definitely. Um, And what you said about kind of having multiple clinical trials, maybe for the same thing, like you said, is it is it worth moving off? I think. see that quite a lot when something seems to take off or Mm. kind of reap success. I'm not saying it's a bad thing because it makes sense sometimes for more people to invest in those capabilities or start doing something in that field but like you said it can become overly oversaturated Mm. and the demand isn't always necessarily known we saw it with covid as so many companies suddenly started investing in maybe mrna capabilities or as something different of a vaccine program and you know at the start when it was the top of everyone's list you heard about it all the time and now it's kind of slowly like this company's dissolved this plan or like they've moved into this but they're now going to start moving the capacity to something else so i think that's an important point because I mean, I know I don't always think about it um, for in Gene, but that idea that there could be extra capacity capabilities that might be best focusing your efforts elsewhere, if it's kind of just. Yeah, I think that's part of
1: what the what the environment's forcing as well is that focus. You know, the whittling down of you know large pipelines into Mm -hmm. sort of one or two narrowly focused, you know, sort of very specific. Uh, programs and those du- duplications that we've seen a lot of when money was was more available, uh, I think we will start to move away. Um, I mean, the other thing is that it's super interesting to think about, and maybe this isn't a 2023 thing that we'll see, but I think in the next three or five years, you'll see this. The FDA has recently put guidance documents out around point of care manufacturing or distributed manufacturing. Mm -hmm. as a method to potentially increase accessibility and lower costs. They see it sort of loosening up the supply chain a bit, which Mm -hmm. is is super interesting to think about. And, you know, that takes digital and some of the other things we've talked about. What hasn't been the other shoe to drop potentially is Mm -hmm. that when you have products that are equally clinically effective or within a margin of error, right? So you've got two products now that are approved for multiple myeloma that are Mm -hmm. both very clinically effective, uh, you know, very highly effective. Neither is is able to treat very many patients, though. Um, And so, you know, a couple hundred patients, based on the company reports of, Mm -hmm. you know, and equally in the CAR T space, we saw the first generation products that are approved only treating, you know, a couple hundred, and then a couple thousand. Potentially, accessibility—the ability to distribute the product, to get it, get it to patients, to get it to hospitals, the availability of manufacturing slots, the ability to do so Mm -hmm.
2: cost-effectively—becomes
1: a an equivalent consideration, shall we say, to clinical effectiveness. You know, if you're trading off a product that's 98% effective versus one that's 93% effective in creating yeah. a complete response, but you can get a lot more of the 93% effective version, then you're gonna select that. If you, you know, if I can't get the other one, what's the good? What's the incremental benefit of that five extra percent? None, because I can't get it. I can't get it for my patients. And so actually the delivery mechanism, the dis- distribution, the ability to manufacture, the ability to, to supply, mm-hmm. Becomes an important differentiator uh, for manufacturers. It's not only clinical safety, clinical efficacy, and safety that matters when you're looking to talk to, you know, P and T committees or Mm -hmm. payers or clinicians about the benefits of your product.
3: Yeah, it's kind of looking at it, I guess, as a, a full life cycle. You can't look at one point or one stage of that on its own and deem mm. it, this will work. I mean, I remember being, I can't remember what of, what events it was at, but there was um, a part about clinical trials and it was kind of looking at it. Yes, it's safe. Okay. Yes, we know it's effective to an extent, but looking at how it doses its patients in terms of what impact does that have on their life you may look and be like okay you need to come in once every two months and um, that's not that much maybe they'll, they'll say but then the family might say okay but for after that two months they're in bed for two weeks sick and we're mm-hmm. at home looking after them and we're off work and it's those things that I think are very easy to kind of skim over when you read just the the front print you're like okay yes. once every two months you don't hear about that same thing like you were saying okay yeah you're efficient it's safe but no one can get it or it's if we actually moved it to this bit more people could have access it could get to the patients it, it yeah. seems that the answers are there but maybe it's not always that that viewpoint um that everyone's taking um, so I mean, it's
1: it's amazing that you know having worked in the, both the U.S. and the European healthcare systems for mm-hmm. more than a decade each, um, you know, if you look at so in the U.S. roughly, let's say, a first generation CAR T product
2: mm-hmm. for
1: uh, leukemia costs five hundred thousand dollars roughly, mm-hmm. between four and five hundred thousand dollars. The hospital costs are another million to a million and a half for each patient, and so you sort of people are super focused on the cost of the therapeutic. Mm-hmm. There's all these other costs that are involved in treating that patient, not to mention the fact that that's last line therapy. And so they yeah. will have gone through lots of rounds of chemotherapy. Like, oh, pe- people say chemo is cheap. Well, you know, eight rounds of chemo is certainly not cheap on the patient. It's very right. harsh on the patient. But, you know, the testing involved, the hospital stays, the yeah. all the other things that have to happen. Then if that fails, they have to go through a transplant. Often that's not inexpensive. And so you look at all of these things and these costs all add up, but they they kind of sit in different buckets. And so people yeah. look at them separately versus holistically to say, how much okay. holistically would it cost to treat a patient, let's say with, with CAR T at first line? I think, you know, if we're able to get some of the, you know, make it less uh, intense uh, of a hospital stay, make yeah. lower the cost of goods, lower the prices, you know, we can be very cost competitive at first line, even. Yeah. Certainly, certainly at second line, not to mention the fact we'll probably have very, much more effective therapies because we're dealing with healthier T cells in this case uh, for patients that have just been diagnosed versus those that are very very sick and have been through the ringer
2: yeah.
1: uh, throughout their treatment. So there's all these kind of things that we discussed that I agree with. we don't we're not typically taking the the 360 degree view yeah. to fully understand uh, the benefits of
3: definitely. And I mean, like you're saying, if you've had eight rounds of chemotherapy I mean could assume you know when you get to that last line of treatment your body has already gone through a lot if it's something okay. that could be the first line of treatment and it you know you might be sick for however long period of time we, we always hear um about Emily Emily's story mm-hmm. and how sick she was at the, the beginning after that but then you know she's now uh, so much older cancer-free it's kind of like yeah that could be the case for a lot, a lot of people if that was looked at, like you said, holistically, rather than that first thing of like, well, chemo is a lot cheaper. Is it cheaper mm-hmm. if it's eight rounds and you've stayed <laughs> in the hospital and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera? Exactly. Probably not.
1: No, um, exactly. And I think you know we have seen the clinical trials that Kite has run for Yescarta. I think Brianzi uh-huh. as well, looking at yeah. it second line. And no surprise, very effective, very clinically mm-hmm. effective at second line. I don't know if anyone has yet done a first line uh, study yet, but I will not be shocked uh, yeah. to see it very clinically effective at first line. It just makes sense. And I think the issue is how do we make it available at first line uh, in a cost effective way? And that's obviously one of the big things that Ori's focused on helping with.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess this is maybe me not going off tangent, but for my own <laughs> knowledge, um, you obviously US and the UK, if you were to be able to get um, the uh, therapy to market, commercialised kind of access for all and it was at a cheaper costs and what we're seeing in the market now how does that differ when you have countries that have free healthcare systems and then you have countries like America where it's kind of has insurance Uh, does that mean that people who are on particular insurances would have access and people who weren't you know that I'm not sure if you'll know that it's just Mm -hmm. me thinking if that was to go global and then yeah
1: I think um I mean we could spend a very long time on a podcast discussing <laughs> the reimbursement system in the U.S., but yeah. I think, I mean, the relative differences are because often, I mean, to, to boil it down in its purest sense, which you know, I think you you know, and everyone realizes, things that are very expensive are mm-hmm. reserved to fewer patients. So yeah. that's why they make you fail first these less expensive, easily, easily more easily accessed therapies before mm-hmm. you get to the really expensive ones, because it does work for some patients, and so you don't have to use the really expensive ones on every patient, and that and that makes sense, I guess, as a cost sort of measure. But as you as you said earlier, you know when we're not when we don't look at it necessarily holistically, it becomes a little bit more of a, a blurry picture. Mm-hmm. And you know right now, not everyone has access uh, yeah. to these therapies. You know if you don't have insurance in the U.S., you don't have access. And many mm-hmm. many insurers don't cover very expensive products. It'll say in the policy, we don't cover cell and gene therapies. I've seen and I've had a number of people come up to me and say that that ha- that uh, happens in their and in their uh, insurance that's sponsored by their employer. Mm-hmm. In the UK, as you know, very expensive products are often not on offer at all, yeah. Or because they're not uh, recommended by Nice, or not, uh, and or they're reserved to last line therapy. So we mm-hmm. we met a family actually through through Emily Whitehead's family, through Tom. We met um, the Jones family here in the UK, Lucy and mm-hmm. Lewis, and their son Opie, who was less than one year old when he was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, at the time, he, he so he failed a bone marrow transplant and was and was then eligible for CAR T therapy. He was one of nine children in Europe who had had access uh, to CAR-T therapy. At that point, this is now a year and a half ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I greatly hope that more, pa- more patients have been able to access it, but yeah. you know, it's just the, the nature of the way reimbursement systems work is that, yeah. is that we keep it, You know, we sort of, it's a funnel where cheapest go first, most expensive go last basically. Yeah. Um, but as you said, if we're able to make these products much more, uh, much lower cost, we can make them much more accessible and we'll get better clinical outcomes. It'll be a self-fulfilling process, prophecy. Yeah. We can treat more patients and they'll be they'll do better and maybe we'll get some economies of scale from that as well. So that's the goal really is to get there, but you know, it's not tomorrow, uh, but it's certainly on the horizon where in the next few years we should start to see some of this happen.
3: It does sound like there needs to also be a mindset shift. And I don't necessarily mean in the CGT space as in people who work directly, but kind of as Society, mm. <laughs> people in the hospitals, people, patients, or p- people who aren't patients yet but might be patients. You know, kind of yeah. looking at everything as a whole, um because uh, you know you never know if you're going to be in that position where you might need a cell and gene therapy to to help you out in your life. I think um,
1: yeah.
3: it sounds like yeah. a, a mindset change is maybe needed.
1: I think so. I mean, it, having worked in healthcare for a very long time, it's never as simple and straightforward as we're as we're trying to. To make yeah. it, I mean, I think, you know, when you look holistic across a healthcare system, there's so many priorities and so many costs mm-hmm. and how do I prioritize? I mean, when we talk about rationing healthcare, people get very upset and very sort of like we would never do that. But yeah. We actually do that every day. We, we ration healthcare every day. and the, the, the mechanism we just described is effectively rationing healthcare. You're saving yeah. what could be cures for cancer to the last line therapy because some of these other ones might work first and, and we can't afford to give everybody you know, the most expensive therapy. Mm-hmm. And by design, we're rationing healthcare. So I think one of the mechanisms we could use to, to, to enact that mindset shift that you're talking about is really understanding the full cost, understanding the full cost of each choice, of each step. Yeah. So what really does first-line therapy cost? Let's just say for leukemia in this case, just because we're on that topic. So what does it really cost on average for the average patient and how many patients actually have a good out good clinical outcome from that you know what proportion relapse what proportion then go on to the second you know the second line therapy and if you look at it as a waterfall then there's a there's a kind of relatively easy cost benefit analysis let's just say 50 percent of the patients actually respond
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, to chemotherapy and you know there's a there's a sort of equation you can make to say well okay what makes sense to do that for first but maybe we don't go through a bone marrow transplant, or because only twenty percent of patients respond. I don't yeah. know, I'm just making it up, but you know this kind of thing. There's a calculation here, and that's really what payers do. And I think it, when you're a patient in the system, you feel like it's unfair because yeah. you know it's it's your personal experience. Um, but you know, in in Emily's case, in Emily Whitehead's case, her ca- type of cancer was, is very very treatable with chemotherapy mm-hmm. for most children. Yeah. So I think with this, it's like seventy or eighty percent of patients respond to the standard, you know, the, the, the standard of care, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, Emily didn't. Uh, and luckily, you know, CAR was available for her. Um, but I think that's, it's hard to be rational in these kinds of discussions and, you know, use the numbers and the statistics to drive these decisions. But when there's a lot of opaqueness, when you don't really see the cost, they're kind of hidden, yeah. you know, in the, the U S the pharmaceutical cost, the cost for the therapeutic comes under a different budget than the medical uh, okay. cost, the hospital cost, And so people manage those two budgets separately. Yeah. Which, so it's very difficult to look at them, you know, because one might be managed by one entity and one might be managed by another, both for the same employer. So just get the layers of complexity are are, are comprehensible. But I think more transparency and more kind of thoughtful application of this kind of cost benefit analysis can only be helpful as we look to, to improving access to these therapies.